0: Hey, Hunter Hastings here. We are all engaged in a Herculean battle of creative entrepreneurship against top-down central planning. Governments use language like industrial policy or energy policy, or they refer to a war on poverty or homelessness. Sometimes they talk in terms of moonshots, like Joe Biden's cancer moonshot. These are large government-directed efforts using public funds raised from taxes or debt or fiscal policy and drawing on the usual crony capitalist corporations and trough-drinking NGOs, it's the classic battle of the market against the central planners. This is the Value Creators Podcast. Value creation is the sole purpose of any business and every business, and for all of us as entrepreneurs. Listen to great value creators as they share their successes, trials, and lessons learned. Join us as we explore how to think as value creators, how to act as value creators, and how to view business through the lens of value creation. Christian Sandstrom is leading a movement to tip the balance back in favor of bottom-up market-based solutions for the big challenges we face, like eliminating cancer or finding a solution to homelessness. He's one of the editors of a brave and compelling new book called Moonshots and the New Industrial Policy, Questioning the Mission Economy. The mission economy refers to the vision and PR of the central planners. They adopt great so-called missions, or moonshots, and then direct public and private resources towards their poorly thought-out, expensive, bureaucratic projects with little thought about the prospects of success, which are low, the price, which is high, or the opportunity cost, the recognition that the market could generate a lot of much better alternatives if left to its own devices. It's delightful to find a group of economists and researchers who are clear-eyed about this dangerous acceleration towards more and more central planning. Christian Sandstrom is Senior Associate Professor at Jönköping International Business School and the Ratio Institute in Sweden. He's been a visiting scholar at University of Cambridge and ETH Zurich in Switzerland. His research concerns innovation policy and the interplay between technological and institutional change. He's one of the world's leading voices for individualism and the market. Christian, welcome back to the Value Creators Podcast. Thanks, Hunter. Great to be here. Well, we're really privileged to have you here. You are conducting, on our behalf, the behalf of uh, all the consumers and customers and firms in the world, a long-term campaign that asserts the decentralized, bottom-up, market-based system, what we call the entrepreneurial system, to create value against a a well-armed opposition, which is the state, the government, and they prefer to centralize all innovation and take it away from the market, apply it for their own use. And You've christened something that you call missions or mission-oriented innovation policies, and that uh, abbreviates to MOIP, which I think we can call MOIPs, right? (laughs) Tell us about your latest book and explain what you
1: mean by the mission economy. Right. So we uh, started this work with uh, addressing this renaissance of industrial policy that I think we have seen in the West since the financial crisis. And that has come in many different shapes and and forms. And you've seen even more of it after the the pandemic. And some of that industrial policy uh, and an increasingly, I think, interventionist approach to uh, Uh, to policy and to firms and to competitiveness is uh, happening under the umbrella term of mission-oriented policies, which uh, basically posit that governments should take an active role in leading and directing the economy towards grand societal goals. And uh, then industry profit-maximizing firms should follow along and a whole bunch of positive spillovers will come from that later on, and the favorite example that is brought forward here is, is the moon landing. Then the Manhattan Project and uh, the uh, you know crushing the atom and, and these kind of activities going back to the forties, the fifties, the sixties are often invoked here as cases of that we should learn from and get inspiration from so we're addressing those ideas heads on here in uh, the second edited book called moonshots and the new industrial policy questioning the mission economy it is co-edited by magnus henriksson myself and michael stankula so we are professors and associate professors in sweden
0: Great. Well, thank you. And just to make clear, we're talking about all governments here. So it's the same for the Chinese government, the European country governments, where you are, the USA government. You you cite, for example, Joe Biden's cancer moonshot. He he christened it after the original moonshot. The Green New Deal, the Inflation Reduction Act. You've got the European Commission's Green Deal over there. So it's all of these governments what what's the attraction for them to to launch these missions
1: well there are many attractions from policymakers to engage in these kind of initiatives they can uh, appear decisive and uh, they appear to be acting to counter great challenges which are of, of concern to uh, to their population so They appear as decisive and uh, as they are truly caring about creating a better world. Who's who's against curing cancer, for instance? Who's against uh, a better environment? Everybody is on paper. So elected officials, government agencies have a lot to benefit from engaging in these kind of policies.
0: Yeah, and one of the parts of your book evokes uh, the behavioral economics of... The benefit that's in it for the politicians—they're in it for votes, they're in it for careers, they're in it for their own pride and and prestige, right?
1: Yes, this is true, and it's been striking how the whole behavioral economics edifice of theory has been used to uh, state that markets are dysfunctional, but for some reason uh, that behavioral. Uh, aspect is is gone when it comes to government officials, uh, government agencies. They're not assumed to be uh, subjected to the same biases when the government is acting. And uh, this chapter by Jan Schnellenbach, he's a professor in, uh, in economics in, in Germany, takes on some of that and applies it to industrial policy, yes? Yeah, they're
0: willing to talk about what they call mission or market failure, but not state failure. That was, uh, I think, in that chapter.
1: Yes, this is true. And uh, market failure is also um, an elusive term because very often in reality, you cannot measure a market failure or locate it, like in what sector of the economy and how big is that supposed market failure failure? And to what extent is it actually caused by institutional constraints or regulatory constraints? We cannot know that. So if you're trying to solve a problem and you don't know where the problem is located or how big it is, and then your solution will be subjected to your own political issues and challenges, you've set up yourself for for opportunities to fail. Yes. So your book is organized in uh,
0: three broad headings. I think that the theory, why the mission economy can't work, the empirical evidence, what has actually happened, and the exploration of what the alternatives are. So let's go through those sequences. The mission economy people, as you said, point to the Apollo program and the Manhattan Project. We just said the big movie, Oppenheimer, that everybody, everybody watched to, to see that in action. They say that that shows that the mission-oriented programs can't work, but you say, hey, from a economic theory standpoint, they can't work. They can't possibly work.
1: We have a couple of perspectives here, which are more theoretically grounded in the first section of the book. The second section contains a collection of empirical illustrations. And towards the end of of that section, we try to distill those learnings, those insights into what we call seven takeaways, which are more of a... um, overarching and theoretical nature and for those familiar with more evolutionary perspectives upon an economy and political economy they shouldn't really come as as a, a surprise either so the seven takeaways that we have here are one wicked problems that is complex and systemic problems cannot be solved through these kind of missions second politicians and government agencies are not exempt from self-interest third Mission-oriented policies are subject to rent-seeking and what you call mission capture. And then fourth, these policies distort competition. Fifth, policymakers lack information to design those policies efficiently. And sixth, government support distorts incentives and create what you call moral hazard. And the last one is that these policies ignore opportunity costs. So, if you take a, a lot of money and you pour it into something and you point at the effects of that without looking at the alternative use of those resources you're missing out on an important part of, of the equation
0: so that explains very well from a theoretical standpoint christian why why this is uh you know bad policy one of the th- interesting parts that you had in there. There's not just the politicians and the bureaucrats who are pushing these things, but there's there's a group you call public intellectuals, making the case for them. And there's a great line by Olaf Hallenstein says, these are not serious economists. These are celebrities. And they make a lot of money selling oversimplified slogans about grand challenges and moral imperatives. So is this a new phenomenon,
1: these... Uh, these public intellectuals? To a certain extent, it's new. Halonstein, who has written this chapter, he's an associate professor of sociology, and he's been into history of, of science and, and the history of ideas and these kind of, of areas. And um, he says that intellectuals back in post-World War II period were in an elevated position where they were expected to take on more contrarian positions and speak the truth, regardless of what rulers would think about that. And then he asserts that over the past maybe three decades or so, we've seen the emergence of a new form of of, uh, intellectuals who are more public celebrities. They sell literature that you buy on, on an airport, which is easily digested and usually gives a fair bit of legitimacy to current dogma and to the current classes who are in power in, in, in society. And they're usually very well paid also. Now in in uh, his chapter then, Hallenstein, uh outlines a little bit three of such public intellectuals. One of them is Mariana Mazzucato, who's become one of those sort of rock star economists based upon our books about moonshots and the mission economy and the entrepreneurial state. The other two examples are also very famous. Uh, It's Richard Florida and uh, Michael Porter. Porter has been in the field of strategy for for many decades.
0: Right, and gets gets economics all wrong with the concept of forces, which is... uh as opposed to people and entrepreneurs. We have Paul Krugman as well,
1: uh, Christian over here, who's equally as bad. Krugman is is another one of those, absolutely. Now, uh, some of them have a long and an interesting uh, academic career behind them. And then they transition towards the public sector uh, and and trying to influence uh, policies or, and they have a very large impact upon policymaking if you compare it to those who stay within the norms and the workings of of academia. Well, let's step
0: to the uh, empirical evidence part of the book, Christian. You're asking whether any of these lauded missions of the past and present can be said to have worked in, in full quotes. I'll read you one of the sentences that I noted. Innovation is an unpredictable, meandering, creative, and collaborative discovery Subject to serendipity and trial and error, it can't be centrally planned. So were there any cases of successful missions, successful central
1: planning that you can point to? So uh, the book contains both a, uh, a couple of in-depth case studies, historical uh, case studies, which go through s- some of these missions and how they have played out in, in reality. Then we have one chapter where we conduct a literature review where we identify 29 papers and uh, almost 50 cases of mission-oriented policies and then how they have worked out in in practice. So this is the, uh, the empirical part of the book that we're covering with, with this material. Now many of those things that would now be called missions were not called that when they were put in place. And, you know, there might be examples which are more successful if you would go back in time. And arguably the moon landing and the the Manhattan Project would be such examples, which are, you know, you can't say it's an obvious failure. That's that's for sure. At the same time, you don't know the opportunity cost. And as Randall Holcomb, professor of economics, writes in, in uh, one chapter, engineering is not entrepreneurship. And these were engineering successes rather than entrepreneurial successes. And also uh, the more wicked uh, systemic problems are much harder to solve with, with this approach. So putting a man on the moon or, or these kind of more tangible Efforts are, are bound to be more likely to be successful, is what we conclude from, from that literature survey. But large industrial projects aim to revitalize an entire sector of the economy, counter something, uh, you know, a, a social problem that is more bound to fail. If you take the, the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, we touch upon it in, in this book. It is quite clear in hindsight that politicians were making use of the financial sector and the real estate sector to pursue socially desirable goals, namely increasing the amount of home ownership in, in the United States. and in the end, almost the global financial system collapsed, and we did not get a higher degree of, so, of home ownership in minorities in the United States. That went back to where it was before, so. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed the Holcomb chapter and his point that engineering is not entrepreneurship. The other thing that strikes me about the examples that are used, the Apollo mission and the atomic bomb, they're military. And so the military can just impose its, its direction on everybody. It can command the resources without thinking about the costs. And it's not a market. It's a, it's a control coercion kind of approach.
1: Yes. And in 2023, there was actually a paper came out which looked at the moonshot with by assessing alternative uses of that, of those resources. So before the moonshot has been uh, largely of an anecdotal nature, the, uh, you know, the evidence and the success story. And that, that is very much how it's been used to, to showcase the, the importance of mission oriented policies. Yet this paper here took the actual multiplier effects throughout the United States where various parts of the Apollo project, you know, had real economic effects, and compared that to another region with similar characteristics to see what the multiplier was. And their conclusion was that the multiplier for the the Apollo project was pretty much the same as for any other government investment, be it a new road, a new highway, uh, other infrastructure, setting up a public institution, you know. So that data really told the story of how successful is this really? Was it just another government project? which cost some money and had some positive spillovers, but not much more than that.
0: Yeah. And it took the private market, Elon Musk, to think about reusable rockets that uh, the military didn't worry about that cost, but the private market found a way to reduce that cost. That's a big difference.
1: Yes. You don't worry about cost when someone else is paying. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly.
0: You talked about uh, the home building, challenge but also there's the mission to end homelessness that's been a big drain on on uh taxpayer dollars in the USA we don't seem to be making any progress you feature that in one of your chapters so is that is that a good example for us to think about
1: yes it's um it's instructive because it is rather contemporary and it is one of those socially justified causes where a lot of money is uh, being put into it and um, where the outcome is, despite all the resources, very dysfunctional. So the chapter is written by David Lucas and, and uh, Chris Baudreau. And um, they, they show quite clearly that the amount of resources that went into this doubled over a time period and the amount of homeless people stayed virtually the same here and if you would add up all the costs related to this program you'd ended up with $13,000 per homeless person meaning that you could have basically taken all that money and just paid a rent uh, for apartments uh, for everybody and and homelessness would have been gone So that sort of tells you a little bit the the alternative. And and they argue here that a lot of these policies were put in place by referring to best practice, by referring to research about homelessness, and still it fails. Yeah. So the next part
0: of the book is about, well, what's the alternative if we... we Don't do it uh, the top-down way. What is the the bottom-up alternative? One of the points you make, Christian, is particularly striking to me, and that is we should be aiming for an entrepreneurial society, not a mission-driven top-down society, not an entrepreneurial state. So describe that to us. How do you see the entrepreneurial society? What would that be like? So um,
1: this chapter which is called The Entrepreneurial State Cannot Deliver Without an Entrepreneurial Society. is written by Mark Sanders, Eric Stammen, Roy Turek. And um, they highlight a couple of those things. So, And the other chapters towards the end of the book point at a couple of other policy areas. So there is a lot to do still when it comes to policy and, and what can be enacted. So There is such a thing as knowledge spillovers, which are positive and those uh, need to to, um, be put in place, not necessarily in the way they're being put in place today, but that is an important ingredient, absolutely. And uh, also you look at how in the 1990s, many markets were opened up for competition. You take airlines, for instance, and to deal with previously monopolized or oligopolized sections of the economy, making room for entrepreneurial efforts, making it easier to set up businesses, cutting down on the red tape. And, and that is going to make the economy prosper to a different extent, yes. So uh, what was most striking for you when it comes to this, this part of, of what these policies ought to contain?
0: I don't think that the word policy should be in the same sentence with with the word economics. There shouldn't be economic policy. Entrepreneurship creates the markets and the markets select the best solutions and they evolve over time. Therefore, an entrepreneurial society would be one that minimized the restrictions, minimized the impositions, minimized the regulation, and that we watch it evolve. We can constrain it in certain ways, constraint in a, in a positive sense, point it in directions that we want, but just let the market become the solution, let the system become the solution. And that's not how we think today because we always think government must do something. And so for me, the entrepreneurial society wouldn't think that way. It would think, how can I tune the system for a, a more preferred outcome? That's not society today, and especially where you're sitting, Christian, in Europe, I would
1: say, but it's pretty bad over here, too. Yes. So, um, you know, when I read Mazzucato's books, both The Entrepreneurial State and and Mission Economy, perhaps mostly in in Mission Economy, she starts describing what is the problem of the Western economies of of today. And there she highlights cronyism, crony-capitalism rent seeking and uh, you know large firms becoming bigger and bigger and exerting a disproportionate amount of influence over the entire political process that's what an economist would call rent seeking regulatory capture you know and and public choice scholars political economy scholars would would certainly agree with that analysis and i do as well i think A large part of the problem is there. Now, from our assessment, from our empirical data here, the unfortunate reality is that these mission-oriented policies only make matters worse in that regard. And that is my biggest problem. If you engage in a large societal goal... Which is about you know dealing with homelessness, uh, home ownership among minorities, and then usually what governments do is they uh, to encourage the private sector they create various subsidies, various support programs, and they do so in close interaction with interest groups, stakeholders, and these are the mighty giants of today who then influence and captivate the entire regulatory process and in, in the end, you end up with subsidies and what you call free money or magic money in the pockets of, of uh, large corporations and, and crony capitalists. And you see this very clearly in the European Union t- today with the Green Deal, where you know hundreds of billions of euros are basically now up for grabs to apply for from corporations to engage in what is then labeled as sustainable development and, and good for the environment, and uh, what's the outcome of that? Um, large corporations are going to hire former politicians, lobbyists, and uh, you know, there's a gigantic jar full of jelly which you know they can just eat from, and and so. The biggest problem here, I think, is that when analyzing it, uh, sort of crony capitalist, capitalist is, I think, in many ways, she's spot on, but her solution is just making things worse. Yeah, so I,
0: I agree with that problem of the, the giant corporations and the crony capitalism there. The challenge, I, I don't have an answer to it, but you might have some thoughts, is to separate the entrepreneurial component from the bureaucratic government entangled component. And these corporations do wonderful entrepreneurial work. They they bring new technology, they create new efficiencies, they create new services, they improve our lives, but they've got this second part, which is the bureaucratic uh, entangled part. So
1: how do we separate them? I think that's the challenge. This is very difficult it is very difficult and um, rent seeking is there it's the nature of it so i think the the social and economic cost of rent seeking in a functioning society that cost must be increased so that those who engage in rent seeking are called out for it and the role there Who's going to do that in society? To me, that is media, journalists, and academia. Unfortunately, this is not the case. I don't think the uh, academic profession uh, lives up to that high standard. Very often, academics end up either studying a subset of a subset of a detail of a detail. So they miss the big picture and they never... Call out the big question, the big question, because you don't get peer reviewed publications by asking large questions, which cannot be operationalized. So they end up either drifting down into the details and sort of shying away from things, or they end up as activists funded by the current consensus. You have too few contrarian academics, and you have too little of media doing its job of increasing the social and economic cost of rent-seeking.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, and I, that would be a, an indictment of academia. It certainly is over here, Christian. We think they're fully captured by the, by the mission-oriented society or the mission of the government. One other possibility, though, is technology, that technology can decentralize a lot of economic activity. We can do it on a network and we can do it on a web and break down the components of it into smaller and smaller parts and still have massive productivity. That doesn't tell you how to separate it from government entanglement, but it tells you that technologically we can create huge output out of a mesh of smaller companies and more efficient companies we don't need the the giant scale that we did in the industrial era is that do you agree with that is that a possibility
1: yes uh, i mean many former formerly monopolized or oligopolized sectors of the economy banking for instance uh, i guess also to an extent the automotive industry insurance have been challenged by uh, the emergence of, of digital technology. And uh, we've seen new entrants coming along, um, online stockbrokers, online banks, et cetera. So paving the way for these kind of initiatives that put competitive pressure on the incumbent firms and revitalizing the market, the offerings that that uh, are, are um, towards customers, I think is really important. But again, these are broad, broad reforms to to uh, facilitate entrepreneurial ventures.
0: Yeah. So that's the entrepreneurial society, I think, is encouraging that entrepreneurial solution as opposed to the the big company solution. There's another point that you you've hinted at in our conversation, but I wanted to highlight it in the book. And it's about moral beliefs and moral imperatives. And we're told that it's a moral imperative to have the Green New Deal or to attack homelessness. We're bad people if we don't, as a society or a government, take our taxpayer dollars and and uh, solve these these moral problems. So there's an interesting chapter by David Rose who who argues the opposite side of that case. It's, uh, I like that a lot. So do we think you think we can make that case?
1: Yeah. The- the the argument is is largely one that we like. We are deeply um, deeply as human beings in, in in it's entrenched in our mind to believe in these large large goals, systemic solutions, and looking for a leader of our tribe to uh, to take on that responsibility. I think a lot of Western philosophy and Christianity, for that matter is about personal responsibility that i am responsible for my own actions at the end of the day and uh, those actions if if i take these overarching big big abstract ideas i need to take them and put them down into each individual who would then personally take on what they find is right and that's how you actually get around this whole this whole issue. So that's my reading of, of, of Rose. It's an intriguing chapter. It's it's a very very different take on it in in sort of business economics and management. As it's sort of more almost moral philosophy over it. Yes. Yeah, it was interesting, and I uh,
0: I related it when I was reading it to the the uh, methodological individualism of Austrian economics. Let it's all about individuals. Let them take up the the charge. let them collaborate with each other to, to try to solve these problems. Let them do the communication, not top down from the government. So I think it's Austrian economics helps us in this.
1: Yes, you're right. It's methodological individualism and, and then sort of the, the moral side to it. To me, it's a new twist on it that, that uh, was interesting. There's
0: another term that you use, which I think can support our argument, which is the you called it the uh, entrepreneurial ecosystem. So today, any entrepreneur, any firm of any size can access AI. They can build a supply chain on the internet. They can assemble resources in ways that you don't need giant amounts of capital necessarily. As you said, you can get access to financial capital from different sources now. So maybe the entrepreneurial ecosystem is going to help us in our in our goal of decentralizing and and using bottom up approaches.
1: Yes, absolutely. So the whole term ecosystem has been thrown a around a lot in in the business administration literature over I think the past five, six, seven years. And uh, when a term comes around like that, and you know we talked about it before, you have Michael Poole, you have Richard Florida, etc. You know, to the extent you become a bit cynical about it, here comes another here comes another management fad, you know, But even the fad has something to tell you, and at the point where it becomes a fad, it might still be a sign of the times. And uh, the ecosystem perspective, what I think it it underscores, is that capitalism is much more about collaboration than it is about competition. Of course, it's both all the time, but how you build something in a vertically disintegrated world, in a world where transaction costs have come down so much and these vertical structures are no longer there. It's about building new combinations across firms, across technologies. and. Um, The collaborative, complementary aspect of of it, I think, is important to to keep in mind here. Yes.
0: Right. We started out talking about uh, your campaign, Christian. So, we've got two books from you now, and we'll, we'll certainly circulate the links to those. They're free to readers, so we'd encourage everybody to download them. I know you're a you're a public speaker. You, you're invited a lot to conferences and making presentations. What what do you have in mind for the campaign? How are you going to spread the word beyond the book?
1: Well, I think it's engaging with the um, national and regional contexts and in different parts of, uh, of the world. Um, I think it's about telling the stories. We have a fascinating story by Andre Alves, who's an associate professor over in Brazil. He wrote his doctoral thesis about... The moonshot for Brazil, it, it, they are even these cases are often referred to as moonshots. And in this case, it was the revitalization of this, the, the shipping industry to engage in deep sea water uh, drilling outside the, the, um, the Brazilian coast, 7,000 meters underneath the, the surface was, was where they would go drill for oil. And this was a big, big mission in the early 2000s that eventually ended up creating the largest, the greatest mass arrestation of government officials in, in uh, Brazil's history. And it eventually put President Lula behind bars. So it's, it's really a really special story that he's telling. And he wrote his entire thesis about it. So it's it's fascinating work. Now, what's scary about it is Lula is out. And he's in as president. And the first thing he does among the first things is he uh, hires Mariana Mazzucato to come over and and speak and uh, preach, you know, the gospel of mission-oriented innovation. So, and that's what, what put Lula behind bars, you know. So these kind of stories need to be shared in local and national and global context because there are so many stories right now. But it also tells you something else here, that is a, these policies are very tempting. You have President Nixon's war on cancer that he launched in the early 1970s, again, explicitly referring to the moonshot, and now we were going to have a moonshot against cancer. Now the war on cancer by Nixon was a big failure, and there's consensus around that now, and we know why. But that doesn't stop President Biden from initiating a cancer moonshot just two years ago. And he would do that in the same kind of fashion, inviting partners, inviting industry uh, to engage and talk about this. In the end, you get mission capture, you get regulatory capture, more taxpayers' money into the pockets of big pharma. And this is pretty much what happened back with President Nixon. So it's probably much worse today, but, but these are so attractive as policies for, for policymakers that, you know, it, it usually has to, it has to get worse before it gets better. You know, it has to fail many times.
0: There's a influential document going around the internet, uh, called the techno optimist manifesto by, uh, Mark Andreessen, and he's making the optimistic case that technology will free us from a lot of this uh, this uh, mission oriented government top down policies. It'll it'll you know enable people. It'll speed up research. The government won't be able to keep up with the market as technology accelerates. So he overtly makes a optimistic case. So I want to ask you, Christian, are you are you an optimist? Can we? Can this campaign be successful in reestablishing the entrepreneurial society?
1: So uh, there is this loophole logic to it, uh, capitalism, where where um, what becomes just entrenched with rent seeking and and uh, crony capitalism and and government officials and, and swelling bureaucracy. What forces can actually prevent it, and and those forces are the creative ones that are adjacent to the system. And uh, in a global economy, increasingly interconnected, the potential for that kind of entrepreneurship are also, I think, greater than than ever. So. I think it was Charles Dickens who, who wrote, you know, he, you know, it was the worst of times and it was the best of times, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We have to deal with that uh, ambiguity. Let's, let's call it that. Yes. Yes. Well, Christian, thank you. We will publish the link to this book, Questioning the Mission Economy. I'll emphasize to everybody who's listening that it's free. We encourage you to read it. It's, it's uh, very high quality material. lots of researchers from all over the the globe and uh we'll spread it on social media any articles or anything like that that you want us
1: to republish christian we'll happily do that so we'll we'll join you in your campaign that's great hunter thanks a lot for having me it's been a really really interesting conversation here take care
0: well thank you very much christian we're uh, we're all in this together
1: thank you take care bye
0: this has been another episode of the value creators podcast thanks for listening You can visit TheValueCreators.com for links and resources related to this episode, and check out HunterHastings.com for more content on entrepreneurial business management based on value creation principles.